Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-host, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Pakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today we have a guest paramedic with us, Mr. Dan Ward. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about blunt orbital trauma. Dan, thank you for coming on the podcast this morning. Can you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I am a paramedic here at American Ambulance. Um, I've been in EMS at this point for roughly 31 years. Uh, most of that time as a full paramedic uh, here in Fresno County. Fantastic. Well, tell us about your case of blunt orbital trauma. All right. This was some time back. I had a uh, male patient who was, I believe, in his early 40s at the time. He was involved in a uh, domestic disturbance. And he got hit in the head with a blunt object. I'm not, I don't recall if it was a baseball bat or a frying pan or something like that. But uh, he was struck in the head by a solid object in anger. When we got to him, his left eyeball was not in all the way. It was sticking out at a very odd and creepy angle and looking in a different direction than his right eyeball. It was it was very strange to look at. Can you walk us through what you did or how you transport him or what was your process? The problem with having a protruding eye like that is what do we as EMS, what can we really do about it? Because... He could not close his eyelid, so the eye was exposed. And so what we wanted to do was uh, try to keep it covered and moist and just protected from the elements. Um, we didn't have any equipment in our ambulance that was specific for treating that kind of injury. But uh, fortunately, uh, we had been to the Quickie Mart earlier, and we had a couple of uh, drink cups that were left over. So I had my partner wash them out, and we took one of these cups, and I cut it um, about two inches from the base, and I used that, and I just covered up the uh, – well, first I put some uh, moist gauze on on the eye and then put that cup over it to protect it. And then at that point, what I did is I wrapped his entire head covering both eyes. And I figured the idea for doing that is when a person looks around, he naturally uh, moves both eyes at the same time. So if both eyes were covered, he would be less inclined to try to move them to respond to whatever's going on around him. And beyond that, it was really a simple question of uh, just pain management and transport. There wasn't a whole lot else that I could do in the pre-hospital setting. So we just focused on that. Well, that's some nice MacGyvering, Dan, yeah. the, with the cup. I like that. Makes sense. Yeah, you made your own eye patch. That's fantastic. No, I I thought it was pretty good. And you're absolutely right. There's not too much we can do in terms of direct management of the eye in the pre-hospital setting. But we'll talk about things that you should be looking out for. And and protection is a really big thing. So you're already doing all the right things. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. My pleasure. So we'll begin our introduction to the topic just by saying that In people under 25 years of age, ocular trauma is actually the number one cause of visual loss. In an observational study of serious injuries in over 11,000 eyes, 27% had less than 20 over 200 vision in the injured eye. And that's a level of vision that is widely defined as legal blindness. So 27% of serious injuries result in legal blindness. 
Each year, there are over 2 million cases of eye injuries requiring physician evaluation in the U.S., and today we're going to be mostly focused on blunt trauma, which is any injury that occurs to the eye that is not involving a chemical exposure or an overtly sharp object. Most commonly, this is a finger or a fist or, in Dan's case from earlier, uh, a weapon of some sort such as a baseball bat. Um, it can be a branch or leaves, tennis ball or a basketball in a sports setting. Oftentimes you can see in falls or car accidents or even projectiles that end up hitting the eye or even the, the face around the eye, oftentimes like fireworks. It's really important to know that proper use of eye protection during high-risk activities has the potential to prevent up to 90% of those serious eye injuries. So for everyone out there, if you're ever doing anything that has the potential to cause any injuries to the eye, if you're able to wear any sort of eye protection, it's going to be really helpful. Patil, why don't kick us off with the anatomy of the eye? We're not going to go into a lot of detail, but we will um, talk about the basic structures of the eye, and we'll start from the outside and go inside or superficial to deep. First, let's talk about around the eye. There are several structures that are important when discussing trauma. The eyelids, the lacrimal ducts or tear ducts, which exist at the medial aspect of the orbit, and then the bones around the eye. So there's four bony walls, the roof, the floor, the medial, and the lateral walls of the orbit. The medial and inferior walls are the ones most likely to be fractured because they're the thinnest um, bony layers. Besides the eye, the orbit also contains muscles. It contains retroorbital fat, which is like a little bit of fat padding behind the eyeball, the ophthalmic artery, the orbital veins, and the optic nerve. Now, the eye itself um, has an outer layer called the conjunctiva, which is a thin transparent tissue that lines the outermost layer of the eye between the eyelid and the globe. And then, of course, the cornea, which is the first layer of the globe itself. Now, if we're going to kind of work our way from front to back, we have the anterior chamber, which is that space between the, the iris and the front part of the eyeball. Um, and the anterior chamber is normally filled with a transparent aqueous fluid. And in the case of injury, this can be filled with blood. And that, in medical terms, is called a hyphema. Uh, but typically, that's when you look at someone's eye. And instead of iris, you actually see a little bit of layering blood on the bottom. The middle layer is where you have the iris, which is that colored part of the eye, and the lens, which is the part in the middle. We see it as the pupil. We see it as black. But really, it's like a jelly lens. Um, that is what refracts light and enables us to see. Now, if we're going to work our way back from the iris and lens, now we have the rest of the eyeball, which is filled with a gelatinous material called vitreous humor. And then the way back is called the retina. And the retina is where we have rods and cones, which are the different cell types that detect different light. They detect black and white light as, as well as red, green, blue, and then kind of focus all that in the macula and then transport you know, messages to the brain so that we interpret that as vision and we can see. Let's go through some eye injuries, and they're really classified into three groups, an open globe, a closed globe, and periocular or around the eye. So Saji, why don't you kick us off with the open globe? This occurs when there is a full thickness injury. The globe actually ruptures and 
really, it leads to permanent vision loss if it's not surgically corrected. Um, This can occur in the setting of blunt trauma. If there's any trauma to the bones around the eye, this can happen if the eye directly is impacted. Basically, all of the things that are normally contained in the eye start leaking out because there is an injury to the protective layers around the eye. And this is a true emergency. We don't call an ophthalmologist very often in the emergency department, but this is one of those things that they come in right away for. Now, in a closed globe injury, you're not going to have that full thickness um, injury, um, but what you're going to see is conjunctival abrasions, corneal abrasions, and these are pretty superficial injuries that disrupt cell layers and really cause a lot of pain and discomfort, and depending on where they are, some um, some sensitivity to light, but can be managed pretty easily and start getting better after a few days. People report eye pain. They don't want to open the eye. They might actually feel like there's a foreign body in the eye. Um, And typically a foreign body can cause a corneal abrasion, but it may still feel like they have something in their eye because of the actual scratch, but nothing's in their eye anymore. Corneal abrasions without other serious eye injuries typically have normal visual acuity and normal pupillary responses to light. And usually they don't cause permanent damage and don't really require any specific care other than eye protection and antibiotics to prevent infection. A subconjunctival hemorrhage is when you see a little bit of blood on the white part of the eye. So these are usually not vision-threatening, but if there's diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage everywhere, then this could be a sign of deeper injury. Let's go through other terms. So one is hyphema. That's actually bleeding in the anterior chamber. This will present as bleeding in the pupil on visual exam. If the bleeding is significant, for example, over 50% of the pupil, this can be vision-threatening. Another thing is traumatic iritis. This is actually inflammation in the anterior chamber. This can present the patient can have irritation and inflammation of the iris or the muscle that control dilation or constriction of the pupil. And often these patients will have significant pain with exposure to light that constricts the pupil and then irritates these tissues. And I'll just add for traumatic iritis that sometimes this doesn't happen instantly. It could take a couple days or a few days to really kick in. So if you get a call and someone's like, can't look at the light at all, my eye really hurts, but nothing happened that day, it could still be a potentially bad traumatic iritis from an event that happened, you know, a few days prior. Another one to think about is a lens dislocation. The lens helps to focus the light entering the eye onto the retina. It normally sits in the center of the iris. However, that lens can be dislocated and cause significant vision changes, and this actually needs a surgeon, you know, ophthalmologist to take him to the OR. And so I feel like these present very strangely. Sometimes like trauma right away, and then all of a sudden they can't see, or it's kind of delayed, you know, as the stress situation goes down, and they notice that their vision has changed. And the last two injuries focus on the posterior part of the eye. One is called vitreous hemorrhage. So the vitreous humor makes up the bulk of the interior of the eye. It's a gelatinous substance, as Patil was mentioning earlier. Within that, there can be bleeding, which can cause increased pressure. Typically, the patient comes in with decreased or hazy vision. They might describe black spots, or they might describe cobwebs in their vision. It's important to remember this one as it often occurs in abusive head trauma in infants and young children, and it can be associated with subarachnoid or subdural hemorrhage as well. 
And then moving to the very posterior part of the eye is the retina, and the retina can detach. And this occurs when the layer of nerve cells, which is the retina, that normally sits on the back of the globe, are detached from the globe itself. And patients will report blackness over their vision or a spot of complete vision loss, um, depending on where that retina is coming off of the globe. And this is another one of those injuries that can lead to permanent vision loss. So if they don't see the ophthalmologist that day in the emergency department, they'll often see them the next day and they need surgery to correct this. Let's go through some periocular or around the eyeball problems. Um, Patio, will kick us off here. Yeah, so when we think about, okay, what's around the eye that can get injured, first off, you can get an abrasion on the eyelid, um, which superficial abrasions typically don't really require any further treatment. When they do require further treatment is when the eyelid is actually lacerated. So if this is full thickness, it may require surgical repair actually from an ophthalmologist. A canalicular laceration is any laceration that involves the tear ducts, which are in the medial aspect of the eye. And these actually also need surgical repair um, because otherwise you can have permanent disability from that. Now, if an eyelid is lacerated and involves the tarsal plate, which is basically where your levator muscles are, which control stability and ability for the eyelid to retract completely, this can lead to permanent ptosis, which is when the eyelid's drooping. So really anything that's going through where your muscles in the eyelid are, where your eyelashes are, is a big deal. Orbital fractures uh, can also happen, and any of the walls can be fractured. Most commonly, as we said earlier, the medial and inferior walls of the orbit. And um, if actually the roof of the orbit is fractured, this can lead to pneumocephalus, air in the brain, basically, and or cerebral spinal fluid leakage. So that's a big deal. Fractures of the optic canal may actually injure the optic nerve, and that can compromise vision. Fractures of the orbital floor may cause muscle entrapment. The branch of the facial nerve that runs through here can get trapped in that break, and then someone won't be able to move their eye all the way around. So anytime somebody actually has a, some sort of eye injury or periocular injury, we test their the range of motion of the eye to ensure that they don't have entrapment. Last but not least, there's the entity known as orbital compartment syndrome. So this is when the pressure of the eye or the intraorbital pressure goes up really, really high from bleeding or inflammation. And this can lead to ocular ischemia or permanent vision loss. Presenting features include decreased visual acuity, proptosis, which is when the eyeball looks like it's kind of trying to pop out from the orbit, so it's like kind of pushed forward. You can also have diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage, increased orbital pressure, and limited movement of the eye. We see this a lot with direct trauma to the orbital area, and sometimes you'll notice that one of the eyes looks like it's kind of popping out more than the other, and is a big deal because it may require an emergent procedure known as a lateral canthotomy and inferior cantholysis to release pressure around the globe. In plain English, that's when we kind of go in and we cut the little ligaments that are holding the eyeball in place so that then the eyeball can relax back into the orbit and that will relieve pressure on the eyeball um, so that vision is restored. I think the take-home point from all these eyeball injuries is some of them are very time-sensitive. So like that one, you know, that nerve is getting compressed, the nerve is not getting blood supply. So if we wait a long time to do it, then yeah, we could do it. For looks, it'll be fine, but then they can't see. So it's all about vision sparing. 
So remember that these injuries will often occur in the trauma setting. So just like Dan shared with his case, you know, the person got hit to the head. So of course, even though it's their eye, you really start with those ABCs. You're going to ensure that you're assessing for all the life-threatening injuries before you assess the details of the eye itself. Any injury to the eye, by definition, is head trauma. So be sure to assess for neurological deficits, any neck injuries. And let's talk about mechanism of injury. So some mechanisms are higher risk for certain injuries. So high-velocity projectiles, so like your bullets, your BB guns, your pellet guns, those usually go intraocular, intraorbital, and intracranial, right? So it goes shot through the eye, they can go into the brain themselves. So even though they present me with an eye problem, that projectile might be somewhere else. How about sticks, leaves, or other environmental exposures? You know, these are really high risk for infection. You see this with people who are working out in their yard or working out in the fields. They get uh, scratched the eyeball with a branch. And sometimes that scratch is what bugs them. It says, you know, a couple days later, now there's pus in their eye. Now they have a little red eye. So very high risk for infection. How about scissors, knives, broken glass, other sharp objects? You know, these present with penetrating injuries. You're really worried about a penetrating injury, which is hard to assess in the field. Um, now, blunt trauma from a fist, a ball, or a bat, you know, they get a lot of orbital floor fractures. They can have serious internal trauma and open globe ruptures. Saj, you want to take us through the symptoms? Sometimes the symptoms can be really important because they can help narrow the anatomical structures that may be involved in the trauma. Of course, you're going to be screening for vision loss or significant change in visual acuity, which definitely indicates a serious injury to the eye, usually to the posterior structure, such as the vitreous or the retina, or it may lead to thinking about significant intraocular pressure. Uh, Diplopia or double vision, pain with eye movement, nausea and vomiting, bleeding from the nose or the mouth, uh, or facial numbness are all consistent with an orbital floor fracture. And then excessive tearing, photophobia, or reluctance to open the eye may indicate a corneal injury or iritis. Really the most important and vision-threatening injury is the open globe. So just to reiterate the physical findings of an open globe, severe decreased visual acuity, a pupil that doesn't react to light, or an abnormally shaped pupil or a teardrop pupil, You can see tenting of the cornea, which is a little defect in the cornea at the site of the injury. And then in the emergency department, sometimes we place a dye on the eye and we see that the fluorescein drains in a teardrop pattern away from the site of injury. And this is called a Seidel sign. So always be looking out for this open globe. And then as a reminder, other vision-threatening injuries are orbital compartment syndrome, traumatic hyphema, vitreous hemorrhage, and retinal trauma or retinal detachment. So be aware of these conditions and remain vigilant to look for signs of those most serious injuries. Let's go through the management of the open globe. I would say on assessment, though, most time the open globe comes in, it just looks like a flatter eyeball. Like it's not as normal, just something about the eye will get your attention. And so just have your spidey sense up that something's going on with that eye. Patil, take us through the management of an open globe. Well, if you really think someone has an open globe, definitely don't do anything that might apply pressure to the eye. So don't retract the eyelids, don't have them do Valsalva, don't put any type of direct pressure on the eye. If there's any foreign body in an eye, so let's say somebody gets like a fish hook in their eye or something, just leave it in place. Don't try to take out any foreign bodies. Just leave it in there until they arrive to the hospital. And then in the hospital, they'll figure out what the next step is going to be. 
And then one other thing is to place a piece of gauze just on the eye and leave it in place for protection, but don't put any pressure on that gauze and otherwise really leave the eye alone. Now for all other eye injuries, uh, again, be sure not to disrupt the globe or the orbit anymore and transport them in a position of comfort. And if you feel like, you know, you have a rough road ahead of you or something, you can always put a cup or something on there, just tape it all around the bones without putting any pressure on the eye, uh, just like Dan talked about in his case. I'd also like to say you can um, have the patient sit up if it's not trauma, right? If it's direct trauma with the eyeball, but you're not worried about massive trauma. I think, remember, when you lay flat, your intraocular pressure and your intracranial pressure is a little higher. So having them sit up, even at 45 degrees, might make them feel a little bit better. All right, let's go through the protocol. You know, there's really no specific protocols for dealing with ocular trauma. So you're going to be on the pathway, you know, on the protocol for head trauma or multi-system trauma, depending on the situation, um, until you reach the hospital. All right, let's go through some summary take-home points. Sajin, kick us off. The biggest injury you don't want to miss is an open globe, and it's really important. If you have a suspicion of this, just cover the eye. Don't put any pressure on the eye. Patio. Just also take into account that if the eye is injured, that they can have other injuries surrounding. So look for other intracranial or facial or cervical injuries if you see significant eye injury. Now, my take-home point is in the setting of head trauma, the eye can really be overlooked. So really try to assess um, the patient's vision, changes if they say they're having trouble seeing, and really pass that on to the hospital team because we, too, miss it a lot in the hospital. It's kind of a delayed finding in these multi-system trauma patients. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.